I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Amy Gaida, is a professor of law at Tulane Law School, a former journalist, a nationally recognized expert in the topic of privacy and the media. She was an award-winning legal commentator on Illinois public radio stations, has written for the New York Times and Slate, and has provided commentary for several prominent print and television news media. Her scholarly articles have appeared in journals, including the American Historical Review, California Law Review, Georgia Law Review, Indiana Law Journal, and Washington Law Review, among many others. She is the recent author of Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy, which is the subject of today's interview. So Amy, welcome to Delving In. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, I just wanna say I love the title, I love plays on words, and it's it's a wonderful just little reversal and how meaningful that is. And also the word tangled, which we'll get into in a moment, is a very pregnant word. And I think it would be really helpful to explain that. But before we do all that, I think it would be helpful just to mention that, of course, the right to privacy has been in the news a lot with the uh, abortion decision coming up. Let's leave that toward the end of this time, just because I think that's so, been so well covered. And the other thing I wanted to talk about before we start it's about the history of the right to privacy internationally and also how it's mentioned but not mentioned in the Constitution. It's not explicitly mentioned. And I wanted to talk specifically about the Ninth Amendment as the kind of fallback, in a sense, for, uh, for rights that are not explicitly enumerated. So let's start with the international part, and because I, I think there might be a assumption from some of our listeners that the right to privacy is a Western thing. And I think pretty clearly it's not just a Western thing. Well, when I when I think about privacy, of course, I think about it uh, in a legal sense, as you uh, as you suggest. And certainly there are privacy rights around the world. Um, and and in my experience, at least, a lot of people believe that there is no privacy in the United States. And of course, that is very clearly wrong. And I think you can find it even biblically. There's right to sexual privacy is super important. Yeah. And again, when I when I think about it, of course, as a lawyer, I think about it uh, very much in, in terms of law and where we get then the privacy rights that we think about we can take to court and sue for or use in some other way. And then in the uh, the Ninth Amendment, uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So that, that seems to imply that the framers are saying, well, we didn't necessarily get it all, but that doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, I do think it's intriguing to look back at what the framers were thinking at the time. And the book does that uh, to some extent and suggests that uh, even back then, the sort of privacy that I'm talking about and the sort of privacy that I research, as you suggested, is very much the, the right to keep personal things from becoming public, the right to keep uh, information from being released, or uh, the right to sue if information uh, is in fact uh, released. That sort of privacy then uh, was very much uh, on the minds of the framers uh, uh, back in the day. And, and getting to, to the title now about tangled, I, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the word use the word tangled because it's tangled up with other rights that are not always compatible. And then it's a balancing act of you know which right is more important in any particular situation. And one reason why you can't enumerate everything in the Constitution is because 
there's so much nuance to the context and it needs to be a certain amount of wiggle room for that reason. That's exactly right. And and also the way uh, I think about it is in uh, that sort of privacy, the, the right to keep certain things private, the right to be let alone, uh, that idea then very much comes and goes depending on media of the day and other things. And so in that sense, we we take two steps forward and one step back. And in that way, it becomes a tangle as well. And I guess specifically, we're talking about the right to know. So the, the, the kind of bedrock of journalism is we have a right to know, especially about our leaders. And so that butts right up against the right to privacy, especially when leaders don't want you to know, because they might say, well, what's the relevance of it? Yeah, that's that's right. And and certainly as a, a former journalist, I see uh, the right to know as being uh, very important. Uh, but you're absolutely correct that many politicians believe uh, that there are certain areas that are off limits even for them. And, and journalistically, I, I think that that's right. So there are certain things that will be uh, off limits, even for politicians. For example, you know, graphic sexual information and that sort of thing. You know, perhaps that's something that should be protected and has always been protected in the United States, basically from the very beginning. And the, the real question many times today uh, comes down to uh, the news value, as you suggested. So, so how valuable in uh, a news sense, what's the newsworthiness of the information that's being revealed? Politicians believe, of course, that and have over time that they have a right to privacy in anything that they would consider personal. And of course, uh, that's not correct, either legally or journalistically. And and that, uh, and that clash then is a, a lot of what the book's about. And of course, before Bill, Bill Clinton and, and Monica Lewinsky, we had Gary Hart. Uh, and, and one wonders, do you waive your right to privacy if you name your yacht monkey business? I think even before that, you waive your right to privacy. So once one uh, decides to run for a major political office or perhaps even minor political office, uh, the law suggests that that one's right to privacy is diminished at that point. So so journalistically, again, um, looking at journalism ethics, many journalists believe that even if there's information that Uh, If there's information that the politician doesn't want the people to know, if journalism, if journalists believe that that information is not newsworthy. So, for example, someone is having an affair. Generally, that information is not considered newsworthy because it's just there's no there's no news value there in in. Uh, journalistically uh, would be the thought because um, the politician has never spoken out uh, against those who have affairs. Um, But the second the politician does, uh, then what the politician does in uh, his or her personal life has greater news value. Uh, And so at that point, perhaps um, an affair would become then newsworthy, at least in a journalistic sense. And and let me just um let me just interrupt myself, I guess, that uh, the law, however, would very likely suggest that an affair of a politician is always newsworthy. So that's an example of journalism ethics restricting coverage in a way that the law generally would not. Well it seems like the the uh, norms about journalism have changed. 
I mean, back when when um, John Kennedy was the president, there was a lot of deference by the journalism about his affairs, which later on it came out were really maybe even compromised national security, but yet there was deference because they didn't know that. Whereas with the later politicians uh, from Bill Clinton on, there's a sense that what makes for good journalism is anything that sells. I mean, journalism has become so much more commercialized and the number of journalistic uh, owners uh, have diminished. And it's it's more, it seems like it's a competition for listeners and viewers more than, than ethics. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong there, but it does seem like the norms have changed. So, so I would push back on that a little bit. And I would say that uh, a number of journalists today do abide very strongly by ethics codes in precisely the way that I'm describing. So would make calls not to not to publish um, certain things based on privacy or, of course, defamation concerns. That's that's a, a separate thing. The, the sorts of um, media, though, that, uh, that has uh, really pushed um, pushed back on press rights is social media and publishers on Facebook and otherwise that will, in fact, reveal very private things about individuals. So the, the journalism ethics that prevent journalism from reporting things, of course, don't cover someone who has uh, a Facebook account. Uh, and so that person can post whatever that person wants. And so today you see courts coming down on media generally in ways that impact all of media, including journalism. So even though we think of uh, some media as pushing the envelope, I would suggest that a lot of journalism today very carefully abiding by ethics codes and unfortunately painted with a broad brush into that sort of social media and, um, and otherwise that, that courts are very worried about today. So, so you're suggesting there's a kind of firewall in a sense between social media and mainstream journalism and that you know, there's a lot of pressure on that firewall. So, so y- yes and no. I think it's very difficult today to define what is journalism and who is a journalist. Courts and legislatures have attempted as much. But today, for example, when I suggest that that mainstream journalism might not report on a politician's affair, there could be someone who posts on Facebook information about um, you know, with a high school teacher, for example, having an affair. Uh, and that sort of information is decidedly less, less newsworthy. And that's the sort of thing that uh, that courts today are trying to are trying to push back on. So suggesting that uh, that there is privacy and in truthful information. There is some level of privacy and truth. And where that line is drawn depends on who the individual is and the sort of truth that we're talking about. So it's very much uh, a line that varies depending on the facts of any particular case. Right, so if it's a particular politician whose reputation is built on righteousness and religiosity, and that person is caught having an affair, that's more newsworthy, I would think. 
Exactly right. That's precisely the way that a journalist would respond to to that. And also the important thing here, too, is that as the politician uh, rises in rank, uh, then very likely uh, that even information like that would be considered uh, newsworthy by by a journalist as well. So so it's all very much a, a fact dependent sort of call, both journalistically and then also um, also in law. Then, of course, the more powerful the person, the more motivated they might be to expand their circle of what's considered private. The president's being uh, a particular note here, not, not just Trump, but Obama, and I think probably all presidents going all the way back in order to retain power, controlling information. I mean, that you don't have to be an autocratic uh, leader of an autocratic country to realize that. That's right. So so it's interesting to uh, the think back to the Obama administration, for example, when uh, President Obama took office, he suggested that his would be uh, the most open administration ever. And then many people uh, in journalism suggested that his had closed up even more tightly than ever before. So now that's not personal information uh, as much as um, information that the public has the right to know about government itself. Uh, but that's, of course, very, um, very important uh, as well. You're right that there's a rich history of presidents uh, attempting to cloak themselves with privacy uh, about things um, important to the public and things that they would consider involving their private life as well. So let's back up a little bit and talk about the right to privacy uh, explicitly not in the Constitution. Well, I should say it's not explicitly in the Constitution, but it's implied. In your book, you talk about the, the article by Louis Brandeis, who's, uh, I went to Brandeis University, so I have a particular <laughs> liking for this. Uh, Louis Brandeis and Sam Warren, uh, the right to privacy, I think it was 1890, the article. Yes, that's right. Could you talk a bit about that and what, what what's the, the theory behind that? Sure. So both Brandeis and Warren were law partners in Boston. They'd gone to Harvard Law School together. And Sam Warren was actually much more famous than Louis Brandeis at the time and was sick of media. Uh, so was very tired of media delving into what he considered his family's uh, personal business. He had married the Secretary of State's daughter. This wedding uh, made for headlines across the United States and catapulted him from just being a member of a rich family who owned paper mills into national headlines. And, uh, and media of the day would report on who was working on their house, the Warrens' house, what paintings the Warrens uh, bought. And, uh, and he, he became uh, quite irritated with that sort of coverage. But he was also really good friends with Grover Cleveland. And Grover Cleveland was a man who had some uh, pretty deep secrets. And, and so, and so I believe that uh, Grover Cleveland had a great influence on this article uh, titled The Right to Privacy. Brandeis, of course, is a co-author of it, but Brandeis suggested that uh, he was not the one who came up with the idea, that it was very much uh, Sam Warren who did. They write this law review article in the Harvard Law Review in 1890, and many people believe that that was the very start of privacy rights in the United States, that it resonated so well with courts especially uh, that they began embracing the right to privacy 
increasingly over time from decade uh, to decade through to today when courts in 2022 uh, will refer back to that article in 1890 in all sorts of privacy-related cases. And their, their argument was that the there was a kind of penumbra. Was that in that, in that article? Was that later? So no, that's uh, it was very much. Uh, if, if if you read the article, it's pretty clear that uh, that Sam Warren is very much disgusted at media of the day, especially worried about cameras. Uh, so cameras uh, was a new technology that allowed individuals to take photographs of others on the street. So cameras had suddenly left the studios and were portable, and there could be images of others um, uh, published in newspapers, sketches of those photo- photographs and um, and eventually those um, those photographs themselves. And so they were they were very upset. They were very worried about uh, the technology that would invade family privacy uh, and also the journalists of the day. That was the time of um, of Pulitzer newspapers and um, Warren and Brandeis were very worried about the newspapers of the day then reporting things from uh, the more intimate family circle. And and that's the whole idea behind that article. They do suggest there that, um, that politicians have less of a right to privacy than regular individuals do. But they suggest there, uh, I think as a nod to Grover Cleveland, that even politicians have the right to privacy in their past lives. And they don't ever really get into where we draw or where we should draw the line. They just make the argument that, in effect, media is out of control of the day back in 1890, and that individuals need privacy, need the right to be let alone in order to become who they fully are. I think if if they were able to uh, glimpse into the future with the privacy issues of the internet and the newer technologies now, they would faint. <laughs> I think they would just absolutely faint. They would crawl back into their graves, I think, and close the lid. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to uh, to look at those, some of their language. Their language is, is broad enough that courts even today, even today look to it. So, uh, so for example, their one line is just about the technology that allows things whispered in the closet to be broadcast from the rooftops. And so there you have the internet, in a sense, uh, people who record people, um, other people secretly, and then post it to the world uh, on the internet. And so you see, as I suggested, the the language from the Right to Privacy Law Review article uh, used by courts even in 2022. Right, amazing. I think it'd be helpful, this may seem a little bit didactic, but I think it'd be helpful to, to talk about the different subcategories of invasion of privacy, just to give a kind of a broad overview of the variety of things we're talking about. Sure. So so the way the right to privacy from 1890 through to today it has developed is that there are generally four types of privacy rights that individuals have and I'm going to add a fifth here. And and again, we have their statutory privacy uh, rights. Uh, But what I'm talking about here is very much uh, in a tort sense. So those things that individuals can sue for uh, under the privacy umbrella. And the first is something called misappropriation. 
And that's the misuse of another person's identity generally in advertising. So if someone wanted to take a picture of you, Stuart, and use your picture uh, in an ad for a local restaurant there, they would not be able to. You would be able to sue for misappropriation. And misappropriation is, in fact, then under the, the privacy umbrella and was the very first tort that began to be embraced in the United States uh, in the privacy realm. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of that was a, a, a store, I think, tried to get around this by congratulating Michael Jordan for like winning some kind of award. And even just an ad congratulating the person implies that they're endorsing your product and they he successfully sued for millions of dollars. That's right. And I think today, uh, the reason why I think many of my students are so shocked to hear that this uh, this right to privacy, in a sense, exists is because it's so easy, of course, to cut and paste today. So uh, so a lot of people think that if, if there's a photo out on the internet, well, they can just use that photo. And that that's incorrect. That misappropriation uh, right then gives even regular individuals the right to sue for for invasion of privacy through misappropriation. Right. Of course, the more famous you are, the more your image is value, valuable and the more you can sue for. That's right. And that's why that's why Michael Jordan won millions of dollars uh, for that one ad published by a grocery store, uh, believe it or not. The, the second uh, type of uh, privacy is what I call the peeping Tom tort, uh, and that's intrusion into seclusion. That's when an individual looks in on another in a secluded space. And generally what that is, is if someone is, is peering into another person's bedroom or bathroom or sets up a hidden camera in that way, even in a public restroom, that is immediately an intrusion into another person's seclusion. We're not talking about crime here. We're talking about the right to sue for invasion of privacy. And intrusion into seclusion doesn't have to be broadcast. So for example, it's it's simply the act of peering uh, that causes the invasion of privacy. You don't even have to tell anybody what you saw. And what's interesting today is that courts are looking at that right much more broadly and finding privacy even in public spaces because of worries about technology, just like Warren and Brandeis uh, were worried about back in back in 1890. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're the royalty of England, you can expect very little of that. And uh, it's interesting, of course, that's a different country, but th- there doesn't seem to be much protection for them other than physical protection. Well, they they won. So well, they uh, did. Yes. So when uh, when yeah, Europe generally has much greater rights to privacy than we do. Again, painting with a broad brush. Uh, but when a journalist took nude photos of Kate Middleton, she was able to sue. The royal couple was able to sue then for the right to privacy and won uh, that case. Now, I suspect that if that case were in the United States, uh, they would also win uh, because of this notion of intrusion into seclusion, that the idea that even when we're out in public sometimes, uh, if we don't anticipate that others are recording us, and there I believe that the camera was half a mile away. And so that shows you uh, how technology then 
gives this ability to intrude in situations, even when we think we're alone uh, or with another, just one other person or in some sort of a secluded space. And that's why courts are finding intrusion into seclusion claims much more often, even in public, because of those sorts of worries of, of technology. So, so that should be a deterrent to anyone planning to launch a satellite with this super incredible telescope, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's an interesting question. And certainly, uh, certainly, I've thought a lot about that too. Just uh, drones, for example, flying over um, private property. And if someone is sunbathing nude in their backyard, is that an intrusion into seclusion? I believe that the courts right now, at least generally across the United States, would say absolutely yes. The person is outside, but that drone can't fly over and take images like that, and uh, and that that is an intrusion into seclusion. Again, this 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 idea that judges have that technology can sometimes go too far. As wonderful as it is, uh, we want to protect privacy as well. The third type is something called publication of private facts. And what that is, is uh, if in fact I flew my drone over someone's backyard, took an image of that person, that flying over and me watching the person uh, in the nude, I realize is in the nude, uh, could very well be an intrusion into seclusion, as I suggest. If I then took that took a picture and published that picture on the internet, that would be publication of private facts. So that is then, even though the picture is 100% truthful, there is the right to privacy in, generally speaking, across the United States, nudity, sexual information, medical information, and some financial information. And so those are the areas that have been somewhat routinely protected in the United States, even though the information is truthful. So that person I recorded in that way in their backyard could then bring a cause of action called publication of private facts against me. I would have to argue that the information was newsworthy. This would probably fail in a court of law today. Someone's nude image image is not newsworthy generally, courts would suggest. And so they would have a valid claim against me for publication of private facts, even though the information is 100% accurate and truthful. So I guess the tricky thing nowadays is the enforcement of this, because it's sometimes very difficult to trace the origin of, of the image, especially if it's coming from outside the country. So yeah, that's right. So we'll we'll sort of put aside the idea of um, of information that comes from uh, outside the country. Um, so and you're right that there are legal implications uh, about about that. Today, I think there's a greater ability to trace certain things than what people realize, and so uh, and so oftentimes the people who publish things to the internet believe that if they use um, some sort of fake name that they'll be protected in some way, but that's generally not the case. Uh, and so very often they are traceable. The only problem is that very often they don't have any money. And so therefore to sue those people for publication of private facts or intrusion into seclusion, therefore uh, might not be valuable for the individual and also certainly for a lawyer who knows that there's no money to be had at the end of the day from the individual there. 
And then the fourth one is false light. Is that right? Yeah, the fourth one is, is false light, and that's very similar to uh, to defamation. All it is is it is uh, an offensive, not truthful thing uh, that's published in some way. Uh, so, so it's different from the other privacy torts that we've talked about uh, because it involves false information. The fifth, the one I like to, to shove in there, even though it's not officially recognized uh, as a privacy right um, in the, the sense that I'm talking about them here, is intentional infliction of emotional distress. And so very often, people whose nude images, for example, are published on the internet can bring a publication of private facts claim against the person who posted it, if not the the publisher, and they will also then tack on an intentional infliction of emotional distress claim. Uh, And what that suggests, uh, what the law says, is that if the information that's published would cause a person to exclaim outrageous, then that gives the plaintiff in the case the ability to bring a claim based on the emotional distress that they suffered. And so in these invasion of privacy cases, you see a lot of emotional distress. And uh, and so therefore, that will be another thing that people sue for when their privacy has been invaded. And I, and I would assume that uh, uh, cyberbullying would, would also come under this, uh, even though the perpetrator is, is a minor. Yeah, so so that too would depend very much on the way the law looks at minors. Uh, but certainly cyberbullying by adults can then be intentional infliction of emotional distress. That's again, one of those torts, one of those legal wrongs that a lot of my students are very surprised to find out um, exists because there is so much emotional distress that can come uh, from internet posts. It was in the past, these torts that I'm referring to, especially the, the publication of private facts tort and the intentional infliction of emotional distress tort were downplayed by courts because of First Amendment interests. And recently they have, I wouldn't say exploded, uh, but become increasingly common simply because of what's happening on the internet. Right, so that's the other part of the tangle. So there's the tangle with the right to know, but there's also the tangle with freedom of expression. And where does something become objectively offensive? It's 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 pretty hard to think of it as objective. There's a, a, always going to be some subjectivity to it. It's it's more, I guess, the reasonable reasonable standard. You know, what would a reasonable person think it's objectionable? Which is, there's a kind of a mushy area there. That, that's right. But the law does that an awful lot. So uh, so we do that in negligence cases. We do that in a bunch of other cases. So to tell a jury, if you find this information offensive, then the plaintiff wins. It's pretty easy for a jury to go back into the jury room and decide, you know, do we think that this is offensive or not? And one of the levels of protections uh, that exists in law before it ever gets to the jury is that a a judge can find something either not offensive as a matter of law. And so if the judge finds something not offensive as a matter of law, that then means that the case will never get to the jury and the case dies right there. And so even though we do have these phrases in privacy and otherwise in law that that are very subjective, 
courts have decided these sorts of cases in the past. Uh, and if in that jurisdiction, it's pretty clear that the information that was published is not emotionally harmful in a legal sense, is not a privacy invasion in a legal sense, a judge very early on will not allow that case to continue. And is this all within the realm of civil law then rather than criminal law? And of course, the standards are not as stringent. That's exactly right. And so that's precisely right. What I'm talking about today is the ability then of individuals to sue for invasion of their privacy. You're correct, though, that the criminal law also looks at uh, those behaviors, too. And the state can bring some sort of criminal action against the individual for publishing nude photos of another, for example. So uh, so something that that individual could then uh, face criminal charges by the state, uh, but also then face civil a civil claim from the person whose image was published against their will. And I would think in the in this age of social media that these kind of issues would come up with increasing frequency and that there'd be also an increasingly large gray area in terms of what's really offensive, what's not. I mean, the social media seems to, to me to be built on the, the universal need to gossip that many cultures try to fight against, but without necessarily being able to win all that often. Yeah, you're you're correct. Uh, and, and that's what's so, I think, interesting about looking back in history and finding these particular things that have been protected over time in the United States, nudity, medical information, graphic sexual information, some financial information. Those sorts of things then have routinely been protected by a number of states generally through the common law, through court decisions. And so if someone finds a social media post calling them, uh, you know, stupid, the stupidest person they'd ever met, that would be protected speech. Uh, But if someone publishes someone else's nude image, that would not be protected, um, again, depending on on the facts, most likely not, uh, most likely not protected. In other words, name calling is just so innocuous by comparison. Just somebody, just just somebody letting off steam, you know. That's, that's right, and so uh, and so courts would say this is hyperbole. Uh, this is the sort of thing that you just have to get used to on social media. There's a difference between that and invading another person's privacy by by posting a medical chart of the person, for example, in order to harass them, in order to cause them emotional distress. Uh, courts don't like that very much, whereas they might celebrate even uh, boisterous uh, interaction uh, on social media otherwise. And I, I would assume this also part of the tangle is uh, defamation and libel and slander, the, all those realms of law come into play also how whether the information is truthful or not is also important uh, if it's not ex- you know ex- exceptionally private but is is false that would m- make a big difference that that's exactly right and so so the way the law looks at it generally is that if the information is false that can be defamatory it can be false light there are layers of protection for even that sort of speech and the actual malice standard in privacy, uh, it's that the information generally, aside from false light, is true. 
uh, and that we respect the individual's right to be let alone. And so therefore, even though the information is true, we're going to give them the ability to sue for invasion of privacy, depending on the facts. Now, do politicians, uh, you know, presidents in particular, have a wider latitude for uh, insulting people, let's say? So, so yeah, some courts have suggested yes. And in fact, there's there's a case involving President Trump uh, back in the days when uh, he was on Twitter. And a court suggested, a, a plaintiff brought a claim against him, and a court suggested that that sort of thing, that sort of hyperbolic language name-calling uh, happens an awful lot on social media, especially in the political sphere. And so, therefore, the plaintiff did not have a valid claim for defamation. And and so, that level of that that decision was very much focused on then uh, political a political uh, disagreement. Uh, so so politics, but you can imagine that same sort of idea uh, perhaps feeding into social media more generally. Something has to be believably false in order for a valid defamation claim. Uh, and so that's one of the issues involving uh, defamatory speech online. Uh, if someone says, for example, and it, an example I use in my media law class, if someone says um, Amy Guida was a bank robber before she became a lawyer and a law professor, um, that's just not believable. And so therefore, if no one believes it, I wouldn't have um, necessarily uh, a valid claim for, um, for defamation there. So the, the person could claim that it's just a, a bad attempt at humor in a way? They could, they could, but but again, the reason why it would perhaps not be believable, I could make the argument that it was, but a court might find it not believable because it's very difficult to be a former bank robber and become a lawyer and thereafter <laughs> become a law professor. And so uh, that that's the reason why I use that particular um, example. Well, it's good to know they do background checks. <laughs> right. So I think we do, in fact, have enough time to talk about the upcoming abortion decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, usually the opposition to the expected changes run uh, along the lines of the right to privacy. So I think it'd be really interesting to hear about what is the background to that particular right to privacy and how it applies and how maybe it doesn't fully apply. Sure. So so that is a very different type of privacy. And it really shows the importance of the fact that you began with, which is that privacy does not appear by name in the Constitution. And so what happened in Roe versus Wade is that the court took a look at the idea of privacy in various parts of the Constitution. The way the court was looking at it, though, was very much about autonomy and whether or not the government can come in and tell individuals that they can or cannot make certain critically important personal decisions for themselves. And so that is very different from the sort of privacy that I'm talking about today, uh, which is the right to keep certain information from becoming public and the right to sue if the information becomes public. It's, it's a 
different sort of of privacy. And and even though courts will look in the sorts of cases that I'm talking about at liberty and look at some of the constitutional provisions that protect privacy in that sense, one is autonomy, the ability to do things without the government, make personal private decisions for oneself without the government coming in and telling the individual to, you know, these profoundly important personal decisions, having government tell the individual what he or she can and cannot do uh, versus this uh, right of informational privacy. And, And we don't know, we don't know quite yet. It'll be interesting to see in the decision that comes down, how then the court, uh, if it does attempt to differentiate between those types of privacy. Uh, Justice Alito, in the leaked opinion, does make that distinction. And, and so we'll, we'll have to wait to see, to see if that distinction becomes even broader within um, within the, the actual decision, and and of course, of course, John Roberts is claiming a right to privacy about the workings of the Supreme Court, and as you know, the, the leak uh, breached that. So that's kind of an irony there. That's actually an interesting case to to think about when when we think about this this right to keep information private. That sort of information, and Justice Alito would not bring a claim for invasion of privacy here, but if he did, he would surely lose. And the reason why is because that sort of thing is really, that. so a, a leaked opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court, as much as it breaches protocol, is decidedly newsworthy. Eminently newsworthy. <laughs> Absolutely newsworthy, as you can see from uh, from all the headlines and, of course, how very worried uh, people are about the ultimate decision that's um, that's going to, to come down. And so that's an example of if Justice Alito were to bring uh, a cause of action for publication of private facts, for example, uh, Justice Alito would surely never uh, be able to win that case. That case would never go to a jury. A court would decide that even if we consider that sort of thing, private information, uh, that it was decidedly newsworthy. So in the Roe v. Wade decision, was um, Griswold versus Connecticut one of the precedents that was uh, cited? Yeah. So, um, so, and that's where that idea of autonomy comes from. So that, that idea of personal autonomy, the ability to keep the government out of our private affairs, that's where that idea comes from. And that is very different from informational privacy. Right. And and if I'm remembering right, the Griswold versus Connecticut uh, was invalidating a law prohibiting the use of contraceptives, even by married people. That the, which which is which is also a kind of uh, butts up against the freedom to not have government impose religion on people. I mean, if if that's coming out of a religious belief that people shouldn't be using contraception, then you, your own private decisions is being imposed upon. Yeah, and it's all very much you know as you suggest uh, a tangle, and it also I think even though they're very different, certainly this informational privacy right that we're talking about here can be informed by those sorts of decisions too. If you think about those areas of law in which legally for so many years now, uh, we've had the right of government not to tell us that we 
must do something in one particular way or or another. That really helps inform informational privacy in in a sense. Those sorts of things, you know, contraceptive use, uh, abortion, uh, you know, those sorts of rights. Then I think help uh, explain where we might draw a line uh, also in the informational privacy that we're talking about today. So what about the ways in which it doesn't fit upcoming abortion decision? I mean, it seems like it has very special characteristics, different from anything else. Oh, it is certainly. And that's it's very much. And yet people who study constitutional law are very worried about the implications of uh, the decision that might come out and, and the ripple effect there. And even though it's very much focused on abortion, and at least that's what the leaked uh, opinion suggests, and that individuals should not worry about these other rights, that, you know, this is a very different sort of opinion. Constitutional law scholars are, of course, very concerned about the implications of a decision like this, should it be then the way the final decision comes down. And of course, you know, one of the key factors is what the beliefs are about the beginning of human personhood. And that seems to be very much bound up in in religious belief. Uh, Different religions don't view personhood as beginning, let's say, at conception versus quickening versus birth. I mean, this really runs the gamut. And so here we have a situation where one particular religious belief is, is being used to define the beginning of person. And I use the word personhood rather than life, because of course, an embryo is, is alive, but it's different than being a person with rights. Yeah, so it will be, as I suggest, I would like to wait to see what the final decision looks like. And I'll be interested to read it and to talk with my colleagues who study constitutional law in that sense. And I know at least at this point, they're very worried about implications far beyond abortion. Yeah, and I was thinking there's sort of the logical um, implications. If, let's say, an embryo is is a person, then the pregnant woman would be really liable for any neglect of that so-called person. So, for instance, if they don't get prenatal care, that could be prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't know uh, about right now. We can imagine all sorts of harms that are possible with regard to that sort of uh, decision. And we'll have to leave it to the constitutional law scholars to, um, to argue against uh, to argue against that sort of thing. So it sounds like you're a little bit reluctant to wade into these waters. <laughs> you know, my area is media privacy. So, right, 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 yeah. right. And, the, and these two types of privacy, again, are very, very different. So one is this right to personal autonomy and what the government can say about what we can and cannot do with our bodies. My area is very much the ability to retain some level of privacy in information that might otherwise be published about us, even though it's true. Okay. Well, you're obviously a a very um, conscientious uh, law professor who won't uh, venture beyond your area of expertise. So I I compliment you for that. So let's talk about instead something that I think is within your purview, and that's the the danger of the loss of privacy. Uh, One thing I came across is that that there can be a rationale by an authoritarian government that we're doing this for the sake of safety, 
you know, that we're going to eavesdrop on you and, and uh, make sure that we're uh, keeping you safe. And then that eventually can morph into a kind of subjugation once the uh, kind of instruments of surveillance are put into place. Sure. Uh, and that's that's certainly something that a lot of people are concerned about. Interestingly, I'm less concerned about that uh, than I am about private companies finding out what we're doing on the internet and otherwise, and how those private companies can use that information against us. So, um, so as an example, there are cookies, of course, as, as a lot of people know now, that track us uh, over the internet. That information can then be shared with entities that are data brokers. And those data brokers then can sell that sort of information to individuals or companies that are interested in selling certain things to us uh, or otherwise. And it's that compilation of information that uh, that I'm particularly worried about and that, that legislatures now, so that government is taking action against the, the data points that, that can build a complete person and then sell information about that person to companies interested. And as as one very small example, I made a data request. So information, I made a request for my data from one of these data brokers and found out that they know me uh, as a luxe woman's clothing shopper, uh, a mid-range Furniture, furniture shopper, and a number of other categories, including uh, that I was a frequent fast food eater. And what the what the data compiler suggested was uh, that that data could be sold to insurance companies. And and so think about the way we interact with the internet, how our phone is carried around with us uh, to fast food restaurants. That's actually incorrect about fast food restaurants for me, although my husband does in fact like fast food. Uh, so maybe my phone is tracking me to uh, his fast food restaurants. And and so that sort of information used in that way is deeply troubling for me. Life insurance, health insurance, the ways that those data points can conceivably be used against us when we think about intrusion into seclusion, when we think about the sorts of privacy that uh, were of concern of Warren and Brandeis back in 1890, that's a really wonderful example of that. Right. So there's a potential for economic consequences of, let's say, higher insurance premiums because they found out that you're eating fast food. Right. Or no insurance at all. I mean, no insurance at all. And what's been it is that instead of using these actuarial tables, it's actually much better to do some sort of data check on individuals and figure out then who those individuals are and then decide what sort of uh, life insurance policy to offer that person based on those data points. It's worth a lot of money to the insurance companies, that kind of information. So if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the in the days after 9-11, I'm not sure how many years after the uh, there was a router, uh, kind of uh, forked router uh I'm not sure how what the technology is called, but there was a kind of rerouting of information from Google to the Homeland Security Department that in some closet, you know, that there was actually a routing of private information. So that would be by government. 
I know there was a lot of concern. That concern seems to have died down a bit about the surveillance technology by the government. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And it's interesting to talk with young people today. So when I started teaching privacy law 20 years ago, young people were very worried about what the government was doing. Today, the focus has shifted, and they're still worried about what government is doing, but they're much more worried about data compilation, especially for them, because they've grown up on the internet. So there's a lot of information about them, some posted by their parents, some posted by themselves when they were younger, and that sort of information then can conceivably be used against them, and that's why so many state legislatures are taking action to protect that sort of information online today. Well, and I think there's a growing uh, fear about mega corporations really being the entities that call the shots even more than governments do. And so if they have all this information, the information is power and who knows what, what they'll use it for. I mean, presumably mostly for profit, but you never know. And and one of the, again, one of the things that I would urge everyone to do is to do the same thing I did. California passed a law that allows individuals to ask data brokers for their information. So the data that that they have on that person. And it's very easy to do it. You just go online and you make the request. Many companies allow even non-California residents to make that request, which is what I did, uh, and the companies will be responsive. The more we understand about the data that they have on us, the more likely it is that we will pressure our legislatures to take some sort of action to protect the use of that sort of data as well as as other types. And I think most people, maybe this is not as true of law students, uh, are kind of blithely either unaware or un, unconcerned about the loss of privacy of their data with the rationale that well, I have nothing to hide, what's the difference? It, it helps me get things for free uh, on the internet because the internet is funded mostly through advertising and they're willing to make that trade off. Right. And that's why I really want people to get their data uh, from these companies so that they better understand when they say I have nothing to hide, they can better understand if they too are identified as a fast food uh, eater, mid-range furniture uh, shopper, and that sort of thing. Intriguingly, what, what at least one court has done is one court has suggested that even though we might share information about ourselves on social media, if we intend that information to remain only among our friends and family on social media, that others can't use that information as a part of a data compilation. So you see courts and legislatures attempting to take action today even though perhaps the average individual might not really recognize the level of data that's out there about them. Well, I think we're just about out of time. So Amy Guida, professor of law at Tulane Law School, a former journalist, a nationally recognized expert in the topic of privacy in the media, and the recent author of Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Thank you so much for coming out to Delving In. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.